Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation, so sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Probably a bit of a surprise, seeing as how we normally expect Lisa Wolfork's voice to introduce the Stitch Please podcast. But today is a really, really, really special occasion where the Stitch Please podcast is turning one. We are celebrating our first birthday. And yes, I keep saying we because I love this podcast so much and this community so much that I claim it uh, in part as mine. My name is Jill Batesmore, and I have the distinct honor and pleasure of introducing the podcast today and interviewing Lisa Wolfwork for this special anniversary edition. That's Lisa. I'm just being really excited. Hello, everybody. <laughs> um, so Lisa and I did not discuss before the episode what sort of questions I was going to ask. And so this might turn out to be a surprise for both of us. But <laughs> We shall enjoy the journey. We shall indeed. So first... I think that so many people are familiar with the podcast and so familiar with you, Lisa, because you're so generous about sharing your story and about sharing um, the, the resources that you've created both through Black Women's Stitch and through this podcast. But since you're in the hot seat today, I, I actually would love it if you would just introduce yourself. Who are you? Who is Lisa Wolfwork? Well, um, my name is Lisa. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I am the daughter of Ianthea. I am the granddaughter of Edna and uh, Louise. I am the great-great-granddaughter of Ethel um, and the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Virginia. Um, and I am a mother of two wonderful boys and the wife to a wonderful husband. I am also a professor at the University of Virginia, focusing on African-American literature and culture. I am an oldest of three girls. I'm the oldest of, of three sisters um, who we are still close and in touch, and they're a blessing to my life. And um, I try to be a good friend, neighbor, community person. I do um, anti-racist, uh, Black-centered organizing. Uh, I I write. I teach. I um, try to just, you know, live a good full life to be, you know, out there, helpful, supportive of myself and other people. I, I don't know. That's a great question. I love how you said all of that, and then you ended with, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> and 
know, it's so weird, like, to answer the question, like, who are we and how do we define ourselves beyond that which we do for other people? Like, who are we? You know what I mean? It's not just, you know, you can't, like, over-identify yourself based on your work, you know, which is the first thing like people say. But, like, is it relational? Is it about the labor that you give? Is it about the service you provide? I, I, don't, I don't know how I even answer that question. So, well, I just took a stab at it. I heard you. Def- I heard that. I heard you introducing yourself in in sort of the language of legacy, which mm. which is really beautiful to me. And I I caught that daughters of uh, introduction, particularly on this day. Um, yes. For those who are not familiar, the daughters of campaign is uh, is a campaign of that is powered by uh, Girl Trek, and there is a feature film um, premiering today, actually. Uh, Chantrell P. Lewis uh, directed that film, and it is about exploring and claiming Black women's health through uh, their matrilineal lines. So... Clearly, Lisa, you are familiar with that and it means something to you. And so I I heard that. I'm curious about, just if we can stay with this introduction thing for a minute, I'm curious about how the matrilineal lines that you just, that you just articulated for us, that you just identified for us, um, how do those express in your day-to-day, how does, how does Miss Ianthea show up in you, for you, in, in the way that, in the ways that you identified yourself? Does that, is that question clear to you? That question makes great sense to me. Um, and it does make me think about legacy. And sometimes there's this, there's this quote, a pretty popular quote that I've seen, almost like it's become almost a meme. And it says, uh, sometimes I open my mouth and my mother comes out. Um, And my sisters and I often talk about this, that we have, like, my mother has certain distinct ways of phrasing things, of saying things, of, um, and that, you know, that, that just kind of spontaneously might appear just because I'm sure this is just embedded in our, like, you know, in DNA and in our practices and things that we grew up with as a child that have marked us. But Mm -hmm. I think it shows up in the things that I say. It shows up in the techniques that I use to mother my children. It shows up in the mirror. Because I feel like we sometimes have the same face. You really and do. <laughs> you we, really we do. I was like, I don't have to search that far. I was just FaceTiming with her just before this call. And I was like, yep, that's, I'm pretty sure this, my mother is wearing, she's holding my face for me so that when I'm 80, um, I'll have a good idea of what I'm going to look like. But yeah. even in addition to that, I think that my mother, even before I developed these vocabularies, things that I learned either in graduate school or in organizing communities, things about an ethics of care, mm-hmm. you know, my mother was doing that already. You know, um, my mother was doing things when we, we were little, like doing things to help people who were houseless, people who were on the margins. Um, she really does believe still in an ethics of care and service and love and support. And, you know, our house was like a big community house where Did people you have would a come. House? We were, we absolutely had the Kool-Aid house. Again, I grew up in South Florida and our house had a pool in the backyard, an in-ground pool, like a lot of Florida. It was weird because I grew up thinking that, of course, pools were in the ground. And it wasn't until I went up north 
or other places. And I'd be like, why is your pool on the sidewalk? Like, why is your pool in the yard, like on grass? And you have to climb up into it. But, you know, we, a lot of us, we had in-ground pools that was just common. I don't think that there's a lot of above ground pools in Florida because the hurricanes and stuff would just tear them up. But we had a pool. Um, my mother would make uh, bologna sandwiches and bring out Kool-Aid on trays and fruit slices. And, you know, she... She wanted us to be able to, you know, relax and celebrate in our homes. She was not strict and she was strict in some things, Mm -hmm. but she was also, she also trusted us and helped us to kind of trust ourselves. And, you know, Mm. it was, we were there for a minute, stay there for a minute. Like, you mean like trusting us and helping us trust ourselves? Yeah. That felt like a word. Say more. Like. You know, we had friends whose parents like up through high school would be like, I don't want nobody coming around here. I don't want no, no this, no that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And my mother wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. You know, like there would be, there were, there were, there were friends that we know went to high school with. I was a cheerleader. My young, my middle sister, Sybil was a cheerleader and my youngest sister, Stephanie played basketball. So we kind of like, you know, we did like, you know, sporty things and social things. But one of the things I remember was like some of our other friends, like their mothers and their parents were so strict, like no boys in the house, no boys on the phone, no this and that. And my mother was like, yeah, have them come over. And these weren't necessarily like boyfriends necessarily, but these are just friends who were boys. And it wasn't until years later, actually until pretty recently, they would like, they, people would come over and play spades at my house. Um, mm-hmm. My mother would, you know, we, we, we didn't have like alcohol. She wasn't, we, we didn't do that. But like the way our house was separated or set up that my parents could be upstairs and we could all be downstairs and we had the pool and we had a little game room with a pool table. We had like the video games and we would just like hang out and play and kiki and laugh and, you know, just be together and have a good time. And it wasn't until like maybe, I don't know, a year ago that, and my father passed away. Um, I think it's coming up on, oh gosh, 11 or 12 years now. Mm. But this wasn't until last year that my friend told me, he was like, we were all terrified of your father. <laughs> so none of us knew, all of us knew. Don't that, try. You know, basically, basically. So I had thought that, you know, my so it, they, 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 they worried about us. They loved us. They protected us. But it was really nice to be able to hang out with my sisters and all our friends and we would be playing cards and we would be, you know, telling jokes and we would be, my mother, if my mother went off to like Bible study on a Wednesday, you know, she would, you know, we, we could still have friends help come over and she never, she never treated us. Our house never felt like a prison. And I knew I had friends whose houses were kind of run that way. And maybe this was because, I mean, looking back on it now, I can see that my mother was very much animated by a sense of love and safety and trust mm-hmm. of us. Um, and of course we made mistakes and we were allowed to make mistakes and, you know, we learned hard lessons just like every other kid learned hard lessons. Sure. But one of the things that I like really remember and things that I continue to replicate, it feels like hospitality You know, it might sound like hospitality with like, you know, her putting like, you know, beautiful, you know, fruit spreads out for my friends or, you know, let's yeah, come on, hang over, come on, sit down, you know, like it feels like hospitality, but it, what it really 
I think at the bottom, it was about community. Mm-hmm. It was about love. That. It was about, and I, I still, I, you know, because you, you know me, so I still do that. That's part of my, one of the things, like when I'm hosting events, you know, whether it's like the event that I did back in 2019 for the um, pop-up sewing studio, you know, let's make sure everybody's fed. Let's make sure we get water out. Let's make sure that we get... You're not coming to Black folks' house. You're not coming to Black folks' houses or any extension of Black folks' houses. And you're not going to eat. That's just... I just don't think that culturally that's that's a thing that... Would, <laughs> would even yeah, yeah. that would even occur to us i want to i want to pause for a moment though on this this notion of trust it sounds like this notion of trust as it relates to building community and i'm really glad that you that you um that you identified uh the community building as part of the as part of your mother's loving practice I, it sounds like the trust that she, there was definitely a trust that she had for you all and as, as her children, right. Um, and for your dad, trusting him not to, not to go upside some child's head exactly behind his daughters. But, um, but also it sounds like there was a level of trust in the community that was built, right? Like I remember, um, just to give that that thought, that hopefully will turn itself into a question, um, just to give that some context. I grew up in a much different house, right? Like in my household, it was a bit more closed. There were fewer children, right? There was there was me. I was an only child for. Uh, well, I was the only child in my house for until I was in middle school. My my baby sister came along when I was 13. So my mom did not have a whole lot of trust for for the folks outside of my house, right? So it felt like, you know, her expression of love was, was really more, it felt more physically protective um, in that way. And it sounds like your mom had had a much different, uh, had a much different approach and that that trust that she was able to extend to you and to your sisters and to, um, and to your dad, that she was also able to to really extend that to the community itself. And so it sounds like you all felt very held and, um, and very free. Is that, is that putting too much on it? Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd say putting too much on it, and I, I, w- I would love to see how my sisters would answer this question, because I think, you know, from like a, as a birth order issue, I can see why you call your baby sister your baby sister, because she was an actual baby when you were a teenager. And so that I think that that makes sense now, because like, my, my little sister, we are all very close in age. We were all born within three years of one another. So my youngest sister was born in, se- and both of them were born in 73. Um, I was born in 70, 1970. Hey, and- hey, hey. Hey, I look amazing. What are the they, hell? Are they okay with you with you telling this? They know how old they are. What? I mean, but the rest of the world doesn't know. Surprise them. world. My sisters do math. They <laughs> know, know how what? old they are. You know what? Look, what are they gonna do? I just I wanna be heard. I want to be heard on this platform by your sisters as protecting their business. That's don't edit this part out. <laughs> Hey, look, first of all, I'm not a good editor, so I'm not at not editing out nothing um, because I don't, I don't know how to do it and I don't have time for it. And this is why people need to donate to the podcast so I can hire somebody to do this. 
it, and it, I love it, that. Unless y'all continue, if y'all, if y'all, if you're really bothered by it, you can come up off some money, drop some right into the PayPal and say, okay, that's enough. Go buy you some editing help. Hit up that um, Patreon it, subscription. Exactly. You, you clip into the Patreon. You can make a one-time donation to PayPal. But until this, until that happens, y'all going to get what y'all get. And you're going to like it. That's what my friend Jill says. You are going to like it or you are going to walk away. Um, but <laughs> so you can love it or you can ignore it. Those you are your ignore, options. You can love it or you can ignore it. Those are your options. Um, but... Yeah. And so for me, it felt like, yeah, she, she, I think she definitely did, but I don't want to make it sound like she was naive or is naive. She was never naive. She was always very protective and aware and vigilant. Um, but even in spite of all of these things, as part of that vigilance, I think she, I think I get the sense she never really wanted us to like live small or mm-hmm. be small, you know, um, mm. that was kind of like what I'm, I mean, it's hard to think about it now. I think, uh, you know, as for me being 50 and looking back at someone who was eight or a 10, um, and what it means to hold somebody like that, you know, what it means to have, you know, children entrusted to your care, you know, what else that's really clear about my mother is that she really enjoyed us. She would tell us that. Mm-hmm. And she would say to us, she would say, you know what? I love you. And I like I you. like you. Yeah. She would tell us that. Yeah. And we were like, of course you like us. Like, what's wrong with you? And she's like, I'm amazing. Well, like, have you, some... have you seen me recently? I know. Like, have like... You... <laughs> but, you know, she, you know, she grew up, you know, it was funny because she grew up in a very different world. Of course, you know, she grew up um, in a segregated world in a segregated community in a segregated city. Um, she grew up, um, in a housing project. Um, and my father did not in the housing projects, but they lived around the corner. There was a lot of, mm-hmm. there was a lot of, there's a lot of economic, uh, privation. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> so much so that she remembers telling, she would tell stories about how when she was little, there was one particular meal that was always somebody, like somebody, somehow possum, ended up on the dinner table. Whoa. Okay. Like, Wait, where did, where did your mom grow up? South Florida, which is where I also grew up. We're like a third generation Floridians. Fourth in, the generation. Same, in the same city though? Um, my grandmother moved to West Palm beach, like in the 1930s. Okay. And my mother uh, grew up there. Okay. Um, and so, and I, it, you know, so we, we have this longstanding history in the community, which is wonderful. Um, just because one of the benefits of segregation is that people got to really know each other and look out for each other and care for each other and build institutions, mm-hmm. um, or use or refine institutions that were never meant for us, but right. to be for our good, you know? And so we already had, I've already inherited this practice of community care about sure. building things and building things in love because nobody else is going to do that for us. And, um, so, sure. And, and the idea, it sounds like of seeing, of seeing mutual aid as a survival technology. See, exactly. So this is right. mutual so aid is future building. <laughs> yes. Mutual yeah. aid is technology and future building. And it was funny when I was talking to my mother, cause she was like, you know, she's getting older and you know, 
there's a lot of news about like the uprisings and her vocabulary and my vocabulary are different about these things. And, you know, she's supportive, but, you know, concerned about like property damage or concerned about this or concerned about that, you know, not like burning down a police station. She doesn't seem to be too bothered about that, but, you know, and I'm unbothered about that entirely. But she was saying like, oh, you know, Lisa, it's those anarchists and they're the one that's out there causing up the anarchists. I'm like, ma, Anarchy is just a system of governance. It's not, anarchy is not chaos. And I can also tell you that I have learned a lot about some of the principles of anarchy from you. And she's like, from me. And I was like, Ma, when you all, when. You're you're about to get put on punishment. No, I'm just saying. You're calling your mother an anarchist. She's listening very intently to this part of the conversation. She listens to the podcast, which is wonderful. Hey, mama. Hey. Um, But like I was explaining that, you know, when you when you hold a repast for somebody after their, you know, after their someone in their life, one of their loved ones has died. After when, the fume. You can say it. Fu- it's okay. After, after the fume. After the funeral. After, 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 after Lisa, after, Lisa, <laughs> you are black from South Florida. You know good and well. You have never been a, yeah, a we funeral might. in your life. Is the fume the or the funeral? The funeral. The funeral. The funeral. We, do, we have funerals. At the, after the funeral, <laughs> who did the body? After the funeral, oh, do she, don't let them do me like that. Oh, exactly. no. <laughs> oh, 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 we have had some, we have had some like, who is that? Oh, yes, um, ma'am. Um, yeah. But yeah no, at, there have been full scale disagreements, like full, fights before I mean, the wake. Like, I mean, so full scale, like, can we get our money back? Like, whoa, types. Like, um, you will fix this before my family gets here, or, um, or what is uh, one of my my grandmother's uh, favorite sayings? Or it'll be hell to tell the captain about it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was like when my father passed away, people would give us envelopes they were giving us and we you know of course this is all new to us we never had anyone pass that was so close and immediate so mm. you know we had some responsibilities like of course you know it's just a, it was a terrible just terrible time but one of the the things that I still remember was people slipping us envelopes and someone saying like one of my mother's sorrows she's a Zeta Phi Beta and she's been a Zeta since you know since her early 20s um, so that's a very long time. Mm-hmm. And they would say, say, put these somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, what are these for? What, who are they? What is this? What is this? Like, I don't know. You know, and my sister, one of my sisters was like, are they giving us money? What is it? And yes, they were yeah. giving us money. Yes. Now, my, my mother had a job with good insurance and, but you know, I don't know. That just was so moving to me. And it was just an illustration of, community of people mm-hmm. coming out in love and they're showing love and support with, um, you know, one of our friends that we grew up with down the street, she made, you know, Lori, she made these delicious smothered turkey wings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes love is a smothered turkey wing. Isn't you know? it though? Listen, isn't it though? <laughs> Especially Lori's, them junks were so good. I, I, I've, I've been like contacting her later. I'm just like, can you tell me more about them wings? So um, yeah, it's like, can we, can we have a conversation about that? But you know what? It really is true, Lisa, the way that, and I want to come back to, um, I want to come back to that conversation with your mom just because I'm curious, but um, the ways that we sort of in, we are practiced 
I was going to say we instinctively, but, you know, instinct is driven by, uh, it's informed by a practice of knowing what to do in that moment. For example, when somebody has passed, the envelopes come, the tradition of coming to sit will come and sit for a minute, uh, and, and the chicken. Yes. The chicken, everybody knows, everybody knows to bring the chicken. So much so, well, you know what, we can talk about this offline. We can talk about this offline. We don't, we don't need to talk about me, but, um, but yeah, I, I am hearing this community practice and I thank you for being so generous with, with your time and staying here, um, for this part of the conversation, because I really do think it's so important in how you show up in the world. To me, the through line is actually very clear. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder in what ways was your mother practiced, right, in community building and in what ways were were um, her forebears practiced in community build. I would love to ask, I would love to ask, go back through all the generations and ask all of these questions. But but in any event, tell, tell me, finish telling me about the, about your mom's response to hearing, to hearing this idea that some of the quote unquote uh, anarchy practices you picked up from her. Yeah, I think she, yeah, I think she was, she, I think she was persuaded. I think she was persuaded that, you know, I get that. I think for me, I, because I'm just learning about anarchy and learning about that as a practice and at moments, and and I think the the through line for me with that is that anarchy isn't chaos, that anarchy is care that it's a form of resistance to systems that centralize capitalism and that you have to somehow have money in Mm -hmm. order to have good care. And Mm -hmm. what anarchy um, teaches is that mutual aid is um, the basis that we, that we, that we keep each other safe. And that's why we don't need abusive forms of police. That's why we don't need hierarchical governments that we can, if we can trust the community to, to, take care of each other, then that's how we can get through. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure she's going to be going to any type of, you know, local anarchy, you know, consciousness raising zoom sessions or anything like that. She's not going to do that. Don't, don't. (laughs) She won't do that. Yeah. She's not going to do that. I I (laughs) actually have no time to do that either. But, but one of the things I just love to think about is, these things that we might not have language for, that doesn't mean that they aren't meaningful practices that we are doing already. Absolutely. And that's one of the, I mean, like, I just, just remember my mother as such a, you know, like just such a, a, just a general, a general generous and caring person who, um, who gave a lot and who gives a lot, even, even now, you know, mm-hmm. that she, you know, still, you know, tries to, you know, she supports and she, she does a lot of work at her church, um, in the homeless ministry. She, um, you know, she, all the things that she does, she's just, uh, she's a giver. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I'm just really blessed that I was chosen to come through this, come to this world through her. Um, because I feel like I see, I, I feel, I feel a strong sense of exa- example in her. And she's really good with me too. Like saying, you know, Lisa, you can't do it all. You know, I remember I would be having these, I would call her crying about graduate school and how men kept talking and it was annoying me to death and they kept talking and they didn't do the readings and I worked so hard. And she was like, she's probably thinking, I don't know what this girl is going on and on about, but Lisa, keep your eyes on your own paper and worry about you. Don't worry about what they're doing. It doesn't matter. You do what you need to do. Or like when I was stressed out about like the PTO, for goodness sake, I was a PTO president or co-president for a while. And I was trying to... PTO is a parent-teacher organization for your boys? Parent-teacher organization for the elementary school. And I was... I did that the same year. Why am I surprised? Of course you did. Yes, you did. I was coming up for tenure. And I was going to school board meetings and I was trying to kind of help the PTO, you know, like be really strong and all that. And I was worried about my legacy of a, as a PTO president and what I was going to leave behind for the next person. <laughs> okay, wait. I, Girl. I don't, mean, I don't mean my laughter to offend you, friend. It doesn't offend <laughs> me. It laughs because the shit is funny. Like, who is worried about their legacy as a PTO president? Lisa Woolfork is worried about that. Lisa Woolfork does not want to leave the PTO in a worse position than she found it because Lisa Woolfork apparently is just all is the captain of team extra. Um, and she would say, Lisa, you, you know, know, we call, you know, we call you the head deaconess of the doing too much ministry. I, I have to accept that because that is actually my life. <laughs> like Lisa, you can work yourself into an early grave over this PTO and they'll be like, Oh, this is so, this is so sad. She is gone. <laughs> and who else is now going to do the work she was doing? Like, you know how, like we say in my family, they're saying that like, right now. They're saying oh, yeah. that right now. I wish Lisa was here. Your, your Absolutely. boys are full young adults. And that PTO is like, man, that Lisa. I'm telling you, girl, I was a mess. Like we say, you know, you be working, 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 and you drop dead at work on Wednesday and on Friday, they're like, they got your job advertised in the paper. Thursday, they're sad. And on Friday, they're like, okay, well, let's get this new ad up. We got to get a new Lisa in here. Um, but you know so, what? I do think that, so this this notion of care and this notion of work, Right. There is a there are ways that we can see them as in conflict with one another. Mm-hmm. And I suppose they can be when when they're out of balance. Right. Just like anything that's out of alignment. But I am. As you're saying these things, I am thinking about um, one of the conversations that that we had recently and I had with some other friends recently about the, the technology of blackness, right? The technological aspects yes. of, of blackness and of black womanhood uh, in particular, the way that it, that, that we are future casting the way that, mm. the way that we, we see a future, we see ourselves in it and live into that, mm-hmm. right? And, and in so doing, create space 
right? There's a, uh, there's a, it's capacity building, right? Like we create space for, um, for other people to, to do and be that as well. And doing so when our very lives, our very existence is under threat, right? It can make it feel can make it feel like courage, can make it read like courage or bravery, but it is it is something so much more important and so much more foundational than that. Does that does that idea resonate for you? Yeah. Yeah, because I guess for me sometimes it's hard to separate work from labor. Tell me what you mean. Work as in work for other people or tell tell me what you mean in the, in contrasting the ideas. So for me, when I think it's, it's, I don't know, I guess maybe I'm just trying to think it through myself um, because I've not spent a lot of time um, mulling it over. But when, when something is work, that seems to be the opposite of ease. It seems to be the opposite. Like you have to kind of struggle and push for it. Um, but maybe that's what labor is. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. I think I'm still kind of teasing it out. But, I, you know, sometimes there can be that you can be working hard at something, working hard for something, but you don't feel depleted by it. You know, I understand what you're saying. So it's 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 all effort. Right. It's all yes. it's all yeah. effort. It is all an expenditure of of energy. But the context in which it happens helps to define the your experience of it right yeah. so if it is something if i am if i am exerting exerting effort in service of this podcast which i swear we're going to talk about i promise we're going to talk about <laughs> um if we're exerting effort on behalf of the of the podcast, which is a passion project, it is an act of service. It's an act of love and care and community. See, I told you we were going to talk about it. Um, that feels different than the work that I might do for than the effort that I might expend in doing my my paycheck job. Yes. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's. I think that's it. I think that's it exactly. Yeah, I think that's something to meditate on. Mm-hmm. I do, I do. So, I don't know if that's actually a segue. That's but a perfect. If it's not, I'm gonna I'm gonna force it to be one. Okay, I, if I agree. Is, yeah, if it's not a segue, I'm just gonna start talking about something else now. Is that, is that that's right? Perfect. <laughs> You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast on the occasion of our first birthday. That's right. The Stitch Please podcast has been around for a year and it's been going really well. I'm really happy with all of the listeners and the people who have come and commented and participated and been interviewed. And thank you very much for doing that. It's just very exciting to me to create a podcast that I did not think anybody but my family, not all of my family, my kids, for example, refuse to listen, but that my family would listen to. And it turns out that this is working out for more than just my family to listen to. I'm grateful for my family listening. I'm grateful to you listening. I'm grateful to listeners in six continents and 95 countries. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
We're returning now to the conversation, the interview with Jill Bates Moore and myself on the occasion of the Stitch Please podcast first birthday. Jill Bates Moore is a fabulous person, attorney, and a member of Black Women Stitch. And I'm so grateful to her for this conversation. Here it goes. So let's talk at last about, well, let me not do that. We have been talking about the podcast, believe it or not, because the first question that I, that I, or the first idea that I wanted to explore is where did the podcast come from? And I think all of the conversation that we've had thus far is, is a part of where the podcast came from. But I'll ask you specifically now, where did this podcast come from? Why? Why was it so important that in a life that is as full as you have described, that has, that has mothers, that has siblings, that has nieces and nephews, that has a husband and growing children and rich, robust hobbies and an active friend circle and an active uh you're an active member of the change-making communities and in, in a life that is as full and robust with all of those things. Why was it so important to put this in there? Where did this come from? He made me sound really busy. And I'm like, dang it, what, girl, what are you doing? Girl, sit down. <laughs> no, yeah, save it for somebody who doesn't know you. You are that busy. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> um, I think it came from... Um, I guess two places. First, I, well, I think it came from, I think it sprung from the ground that is Black Women's Stitch. And I say that because um, the idea was kind of popping around in 2019, around March of 2019. That's when we had the very, very first Beach Week. And we were talking and brainstorming about how, ways that we can continue to connect after the event was over. And we started to talk about like, oh, we could do, um, you know, since all of us come from, you know, different creative backgrounds and have different creative skills, what if we shared these skills? skills um, in some way and oh someone could talk about this and someone could talk about that and someone could talk about this and we were just kind of brainstorming about how we could basically connect and share the resources of our knowledge with each other and so that was an idea that sounded great to me and I was like oh that is really interesting I would love to keep in touch etc cetera, etc cetera. little did I know that um, we would still keep in touch no matter what <laughs> And that we would uh, communicate regularly long after the event. And that's just been, again, another blessing. Uh, but so that was one of the things. Was about, it was about the, the, the information that we had and how we could make that available to each other and to other people. So that was one example. But the other thing I wanted to elevate was that there are Black women who have, who have a legacy of sewing, of quilting, of making, of needle arts, and that I just wasn't seeing it. I, and that's my own limitation. I just, I wasn't seeing it. And if, I know it's because my background in terms of how I started sewing, although my grandmother sewed, my mother sewed, my great-grandmother apparently sewed, I came from all these women. My um, my grandmother, my uncle told me on my father's side, had a sewing club. 
it was they they would get together and they would sew and i think they were able to like raise money for the for their kids uh baseball uniforms or something mm-hmm. it was like a sewing club i was like oh my gosh i didn't know that my mimi had a sewing club it you runs know? in the family girl it runs in Apparently. the family Apparently, but when it came time for me to get the actual formal education, I didn't pick it up until I was in graduate school. And I went to graduate school in Madison, Wisconsin. It was very white. And, I, and I, when I say very white, that might sound like, oh, majority white. I mean, it was white, white, like 96% white, 4% non-white in the entire university of, I think, 40,000 people. Mm. And so I would see people, I would, some of the students I would teach would tell me things like, oh, you're the first black person I've ever talked to. Or like, it was a lot. (laughs) It was a lot. It really was. The the saving grace was I had amazing mentorship. Uh, Dr. Nellie McKay was my mentor and she really got me through and, you know, you know, I, in some ways I claim myself as a, a daughters of in that context as an academic, um, being able to have her as a model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, there's, there's just, you know, it was just a lot. And so my recreation was, you know, sewing and quilting. But when I went to the classes and when I went to retreats and when I went to quilt shops, when I went to all those things during that time, um, I was always the only black person there. And so that does give you, it gave me a distorted perspective. Or maybe I didn't realize how distorted it was at the time. I thought that's just how it was because that's just how it was for me. And so it wasn't so, until... So just to mm-hmm. just to pause there for a second, you thought that's how what was? Yes. That there just were no Black people in in these sewing spaces or that black people weren't sewing or they tell me, tell me what the, what the, the, that was. I think the, that was for me, my experience of learning to sew and quilt in a majority white space meant that I did not see other black people doing this Mm. now that now of course i knew in my heart that that was false because in your life right like i mean you you know that black people sorry and i didn't i didn't mean to to craft the question in a way to imply that you didn't no 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 but i but but you know like i said i do have this legacy as a like fourth generation sewist Black sewers, except that my context in terms of the formal structures, the formal education, um, the information that I received, the people who were teaching me in sewing and quilting classes, the Mm -hmm. books that I would buy to learn about sewing and quilting, the magazines that I subscribed to, Quilt Maker, Threads, um, Quilting News, Sew News, all of the things that I subscribed to, all the information that I was getting, you know, the Sewing with Nancy. Actually, I met her once. It was really great because her show, Sewing with Nancy, was out of Wisconsin Public Radio, a public mm-hmm. public TV, which filmed in Madison. And so, like, it was like, you know, I, it was all very, very white. All of it. When I would go into a sewing store to buy a machine, it was white. It was all white. It was just all white. That's what my context was. So the community that your, that your, did you call her your Mimi? Yes. My grandma, that's my Mimi. Uh Uh-huh. The community that your, that you came to learn about that your, that your Mimi created, that, 
that community, which has tech, I'm sure had technical instruction and, you know, and, and all of that just done in community. Right. Um, right. that was, that was missing from your experience. And so, and so what, so then you, I know the answer to this question, but, (laughs) but so you don't see yourself or your experience or your people in, in these, uh, in these white spaces. And so you do what in response? So for what purpose? Maybe it wasn't in response. Well, I think it was both. It was both. It was in, it was in, it was in response, but you know, it took a really long time because I had always, you know, that had become the norm for me that I just thought that was the way it was. And so even when I moved here um, and I joined a quilt guild, um, when I joined uh, the American Sewing Guild chapter and actually helped to start that going a little bit here in Charlottesville, like when I did all that, it was always older white women. That was who I saw. I didn't even see white women who were my age. Um, I was always the only black person and the youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it wasn't until actually in t- as a response to racial trauma mm-hmm. that I, oh, rate not racial trauma. It's not racial trauma. It is racism and white supremacy. That is what I'm talking about. We've got, I know I, n- I need to, I'm always telling people about like vocabulary, you know, I knew racial- you would fix it. I, I knew you would fix it. Just a side note that racial is not a, a negative thing. Everyone has race. Racism is the thing we don't want. Um, so it was racism and racist uh, trauma and, and the kind of lingering effects of that, that propelled me to finally build my own thing. Um, and that was, you know, in response to um, my own activism against white supremacist terrorism, um, being a victim of white supremacist terrorism, um, um, you know, with the the events of August 2017 here in Charlottesville, Virginia, where the largest white supremacist rally was held. And we had a whole summer of white supremacist activity in the community. And, you know, it was just, it was horrible. And so I... My, I was motivated to go out into the streets. I was motivated to, to help to write. I was motivated to help do media training. I was motivated to do all of these different activist things because I was just galled by the idea that these people were, A, still around, and B, thought they were better than me, and C, I didn't want, that, I didn't want my children to have to deal with this shit. So for me, it felt like a legacy battle to, to kind of help create a brighter future for other Black children moving forward. Um, Mm -hmm. and the white sewing community that I had been with were either very silent on this question or they were saying things that were like, well, why don't you just stay home? Let's just ignore them. I don't see what the big deal is. Everyone should have free speech, blah. And it just was, it was just a bad time. It was a very bad time. And, um, yeah. And it sounds like nobody in, at the risk of, of sanitizing this, because you know me, you know, that's not what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, the, but it sounds like in your efforts as community caregiver or as, as contributing to community care, the space, the sewing space, the quilting space, the needle arts space, this is uh, 
these are nourishing practices for you or you intend them to be nourishing practices yeah. for yourself. So you so you come from these le- these legit actual sites of terrorism and you come to your nourishing places only to find that nobody in these nourishing places is capable of answering the question of how do we care for the caregiver? Nobody, nobody has anything on it to, to be able to, to be equipped to provide the care that you deservedly rely on your nourishing spaces and your nourishing practices to provide. Is that overstating it? Understating it? I, I don't I don't think it's overstating it. I think it's I think it's definitely I, I definitely want to acknowledge that there were a couple people who reached out, but for the our large part, it was just a it was people being unsure what to do and so doing nothing. Um, and that silence felt very isolating. Now there were some people that I have just learned, you know, that 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 revealed themselves to just be racist, you know, and they were actively toxic and actively harmful to me directly. Yeah, but we Um, both know that you don't have to be actively harmful or quote unquote actively toxic in order to be anti-black, right? And silence is, silence can be anti-blackness. That's right. That's right. It really can be. It really can be. And so it really helped to, it was, it was hurtful but it helped ultimately to clear my vision. Mm. It really did. And what I realized that I needed to, in building what I needed, I needed a space. And this is something that I say a lot is that I would never again. sew with anybody who did not believe that black lives mattered period. And that I also deserved and came from a legacy already that I did not have to build of black women sewing and caring for each other. My, my, my mother and her cousin would get together and they would sew in the summertime. My mother and some of her work friends would get together and sew in the summertime. My mother, Mm -hmm. my grandmother and my grandmother's sister sewed, Um, And they would sew for other people. They would do alterations. They do um, really fine handwork. My grandmother could do a hand-picked zipper, which I wish I had known about. I didn't even know what that was um, until, you know, until it was too late to get her help with how to actually do it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so I come from that. I don't, that basically I had somehow fooled myself into thinking or convinced myself or told myself a story that all of the valuable information about sewing and how we acquired that information is held by white people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it happens. Like it is so, it is so insidious that, and then you have that moment where you are able to, to reconnect with your already knowing, right. That, You have a technology for this. You have a technology. Blackness is a technology. Black womanhood Uh is a technology. This this question already has an answer that you don't have to go anywhere to get. You just have to call it forth, right? 
Yes. Call it forth. Call and so then what it happened? forth. And, and then I called it forth or I continued to practice and call it forth. And it answers. You know, you mm-hmm. pull out, I put out a call and people answer like with the events, with Beach Week, with the retreat, with the the class, I pull out a call and people answer. And I feel like that's happening with the podcast as well. Like I get these really lovely notes or DMs and emails and stuff saying, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for showing us who we are. Thank you for, um, you know, I didn't know this platform existed and I'm glad that I do, um, you know, like these kind of things. So I feel like in building what I needed and things that I needed to see, I was able to kind of create this really nice archive ideally for people to go back and say, oh yeah, we, you know, I learned about this lady. She's got this, she's got a podcast and she ended up showing me about, you know, this young fashion designer and her experiences at Mississippi State. And, oh, she, um, she talked a bit to this artist who does work with rug tufting and needle felting. Oh, Mm -hmm. and she talked to, um, Nikki from Sewing My Style. I've always seen her pictures and now I got to learn more about her because she talked about it on the podcast, you know. And Deborah Grayson, who does an amazing, I think that was one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, Um, Deborah's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I got a note about her just the other day. Like, someone was like, thank you for introducing me to Deborah's work, you know? So these kind of things. Talk so to the it lady. Sounds who- like the yeah. podcast is like, sorry to interrupt. It sounds like the podcast is, is sort of an extension of that calling forth, right? Like events are one thing, right? Beach week is one thing. Um, the Stitch Please Retreat is one thing, but those are always going to have capacity limits, right? Only so many people are uh, are going to be able to participate in those things. And you don't, you have a, a whole suite of jobs already. We already talked about those. So you're not going to be turning yourself into anybody's full-time uh, event planner. Um, so outside of the event context, it sounds like the podcast really really addresses this question of how do how do how do we continue to or how do you continue to to co-create the thing that you needed with the idea that if you needed it somebody else needed it too right and that affirmation continues to come yes yes yeah. absolutely it's like one of the things like in my in my classes. I'm like, you know what? If any of you all ever have a question, please don't wait until afterward to ask me. If it's if it's a personal private question, sure. But if it's something that like you are unsure about the material or you don't understand how this things work, this thing work, it's a good chance that somebody else has that exact same question. Mm-hmm. And so by asking it to the group, you are giving everybody the opportunity to get an answer that'll benefit them. Mm-hmm. And you're being a good, you're giving a good model of how to ask a question, you know? Yeah. And so for me, the podcast has been just that. It has been being able to talk to the great people that I've talked to or talk about the issues that might seem like tiny, minute issues that only affect a niche of people. But you know what? Some people really want to know how to get the pattern back in the envelope. Yeah. 
you know, that bothers some people. And they're like, I don't understand this. I don't, how does this work? This is ridiculous. And I'm like, oh, I was able to do a podcast episode that talked about pressing and that's the secret to getting it back in the envelope, you know? So mm-hmm. like these little and things. And it's validating that- to people's experiences, even down to what, what you might consider the, the minutia, but don't we get to have minutia? Like, don't we get to have the full, the full range of the full range of experience? Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so for me, like, and that's why I try to, like, that's why I alternate between like interviews mm-hmm. and um, solo episodes where I just talk about things that are either sewing related or if like a, a, if something like pops off that I think, you know, really needs to have more exposure. Uh, I That's what that's what I think the, the podcast is for. It really is about centering black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. Because for me, as a girl, as a child, yes, I felt centered. My grandmother made clothes for me. My mother made clothes for me. My aunts and cousins, they, they, they you know, so I'm used to, you know, standing there and trying not to be picked, not to be stuck with a pen as a seven-year-old because yes. I can't stop moving, you know, or like, oh my gosh, this is taking forever. Um, so or I've sweating. been there. Just standing oh, there sweating. sweating. <laughs> it's <just> hot. <laughs> you are covered in crinoline or tool or whatever it is. And I'm like, am I going to even like this? You know, whatever, you know. But, or going to the fabric store. Oh my gosh, this is a very funny story. My mother used to take us to these fabric stores, of course. And it was the most boring experience in all of my life. And I was just like, why, Lord? Wait, why? You can actively, that's amazing. We, that we are in, in a place in life now where we can actively recall being bored by a fabric store. I act, and this is <laughs> putting the, what put a thing. The, putting the shoe on the other foot. When my mother came to visit a while ago, you know, pre-COVID, she came to visit us years ago. We went up to that Joann's and she was like, when are we we leaving? leaving? (laughs) And I was like, I'm about to pop you in the hand. What are you doing? How are you complaining? You're going to sit here just like you made us sit here. You can look at the book, look at the book. Oh goodness! Look at the pattern book. How about that? It's like, oh, how much more time do we need here? This is so boring. And I was like, Are you done yet? <laughs> do you really need all of those patterns? I know, right? Are I, you going to look through the whole book? Do you do you have to look at the whole book? <laughs> you have to look at all these books. These books are really long. How long is this going to take? Oh shoot. I'm sorry. It's, okay. But you were, so you were but telling your story. You were, you and your mom were in the fabric store. You no, were no, bored that, to tears. That was it. That was it. They're just saying that what goes around comes around. Me yeah. being bored <laughs> in the fabric store. It means I get, I get to take my adult mother with me to the fabric store and she gets, now it's her turn to be bored. And I'm sure maybe my grandkids will be taking me somewhere and I'll, they'll, you know, and I'll be boring them and they'll be boring me. It's the beautiful circle of life. Um, I love it. But, what I didn't see was, and so this is why I'm very strategic and deliberate about what it means to center black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. Because I, as, a, as an adult, when I started to acquire my knowledge and practice about sewing, it was not from black women mm-hmm. and it was not from, it was not from other black folks. And I just didn't, I, and, and it just made it all feel, and this is actually something that a white ally says, this is Heather Givens. She owns, um, she owns, what's that? Uh, Crimson Tate. And mm-hmm. she said, one of the things that she's trying to work on is to convince people that sewing or that quilting is not an all white sport. 
That's what she, that's how, some of the phrase she uses, that quilting is not an all-white sport. She has to convince um, white people of that? She needs to convince white people of that. Yeah, because um, I was going to say, black people know that. Black people know that. Black, black, know black that people are really clear but about that. Black people are very clear on that. But I think it's good for her to, you know, to be talking about it, because this is what, this is what I tend to want white people to do, is to talk to other, don't talk to me about, you know, your efforts to diversify, right. you know, you talk to, talk to white people about white people's things, right? Because this is something, a system that they've benefited from and created, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. that was one of the things that I've been trying to do is to, to just basically let it be really clear that we have, of course, we've always been here. We have always been here. We have always done it. We have been sewing since there were things to make and be made. You know, we have um, what one scholar describes in a Smithsonian exhibit called the will to adorn. Yep. But I mean, but let that be clear to whom, right? Because we don't have anything to prove to anybody, do we? I mean, I hear, I hear the letting it be clear as an extension of the calling forth to community, right? Like the, Mm -hmm. I hear that as, as a welcome, right? Like the first part of the church service where (laughs) where the the choir is processing in, right? It's, it's, It's part of the welcome, but I don't want to put words in, in your mouth. So, so let it be clear to whom. I felt like for me, I had to have it, I would like it to be clear maybe to myself mm-hmm. and to let us know what our legacy is or let us know. I, I see it, let it be clear to us. Now, maybe there are, mm-hmm. and again, I am limited and framed by my context and my experience. And again, although I came from this as an ancestral practice, I wasn't doing it alongside them. I was a child who was kind of like receiving. I was getting the dresses. I was getting the outfits. I was getting the clothes. I was getting the patterns. I was getting these things, but I wasn't making anything. Mm -hmm. And so for me to acquire my sewing knowledge as an adult, it was not at all clear that that black folks were deeply involved. It, it that that was it just felt invisible to me. Yeah, um, and so I think for that th- distinction is is really significant because I wouldn't want anybody to hear this episode and to walk away from it with an understanding that you started this podcast in order to like sort of as an oppositional force to the white sewing community, right? Like they, because that in its way still centers that community. That this, yeah, the, true. The goal here is and always was about creating a magnetic and sort of very visible, um, a very visible and welcoming and nourishing site for people who are, who are in pretty much the same place that you were when you were inspired to create it. 
Yes, I think that is absolutely accurate. This is not oppositional. This is not this is not trying to and in some ways it's kind of like how we think about how systems work. I know for some people they're fine with the system the way it is. They just want more black people in it. Hmm. Um that's not what this is. I'm not this what I'm more interested in is like how can we create um this a robust space for such a vast array of sewing knowledges and how can we, how can the stitch please podcast kind of be an, or practice an ethic of care? Mm. How can that, and for me, and that's why knowing and saying the names of ancestors are important. That's why, um, being able to say, I want to center black women, girls, and femmes. And so the things that, um, the, the, the people that I talk to on the podcast, the questions that I ask, the people that I cite, um, those, the people that, the people that I'm in conversation with and, and, and are hopefully introducing to a new larger audience are black women who, who are out there doing their own thing too, you mm-hmm. know? And so I think for me, it's about recalibrating, mm-hmm. um, and not just replacing, you know, it's not, it's kind of like when people called B Smith, the black, B Smith, the black Martha Stewart, Mm -hmm. right? Like there was like, there was only one slot and we already had somebody in it, but if you want to put a black person in it, then we will call her this. And it's like, no, no, she's not the black Martha Stewart. She is, you know, she is who she is. She is her whole own self. She is her whole own totality, you know, and that should be chair. And that is sufficient. And that is amazing. And that is wonderful, you know? Absolutely. So, that's, so that's the thing that I was thinking about. And I think that too often some folks get trapped into this model of diversity and inclusion as a phrase, as a buzzword. And it's not about diversifying um, a system that's corrupt, you know, it's not about including people into uh, something that's all that's broken. Um, it's about, for me, it's about being more capacious, um, both internally about how we tell the stories to ourselves and about ourselves, as well as externally, the things that we see in the world around us. And I am working on Stitch Please as a podcast that is able to have Black women who are really invested in the sew- in sewing, who see sewing as a recreation, who see sewing as a practical skill, who see sewing as something that's fun to do, that they can find other Black women who are doing it too all around the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so... As we sort of prepare to close the conversation, um, at least for podcast purposes, right? Mm -hmm. I would like to know two things. One, is there anything that you feel surprised by? in terms of uh, what the podcast has either done, what space it's created, what it has taken to make it happen, anything. Is there anything uh, regarding the, the podcast that has, that has struck you as a surprise? And the other thing I'd like to know is if there is, if there is a, a further vision 
we've talked a bit about the original vision and sort of what brought you here. Is there a further vision um, as you go into this second year of the podcast? Um, anything that's, I mean, I'm sure there's some technical things, but anything beyond the technical things uh, vision-wise that come up for you for the podcast? That's a that's an excellent question. Thank you for that. So for well, some thanks. Yeah, very good. I do, I do my good. best. I do try. I do try. <laughs> you are you're doing amazing. <laughs> you're a great interviewer. Um, I, for surprises, well, first surprise is that people listen to the podcast. That was a big surprise because I was like, oh my gosh. Well, I you know this is one of the things being animated by a passion project is that. I didn't really care if any, I thought, I didn't, I didn't know and I wasn't sure if anybody beyond me would listen to the podcast. You knew we were um, going to listen to it. You knew well, we were going to listen to the podcast. I, I, I wasn't sure. You know, my own children told me that they weren't going to listen. That is completely different. The things you put those children through, <laughs> they are still, they are still smarting from their, their experience of you as the PTO chief. <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm surprised if Ryan will bring you a cold drink. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that is, you know, some days uh, he won't. But, um, but yes. Yeah, so that's one of the. That's one thing that people listen and that people like around the world listen. Like I've got like a really robust following in New Zealand and Australia, and that's like. Thank you so much. Thank y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there's also, so that's a, that's a great surprise. Um, but also getting to learn about all the things I wanted to know about. Mm -hmm. So I'm still able to kind of satisfy my curiosity. Um, mm. and that's something that I hope will continue. So there's in still something in it for you, like yes. that you get to, that you sort of get to be creatively inspired by and have your, oh, huh, moments. Absolutely. And I yeah. have them all the time. I I'm, love that. I'm, con I'm constantly surprised talking to, I, and I still have such joy for it. And I'm talking to exciting people and, you know, and I love that. I love that. And so for future, I just want to hope to continue with that. And, you know, that's the thing about the surprises. I never know what's coming next. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to even map out a further vision because I'm not trying to be like the largest sewing podcast in the world. Mm -hmm. I want to be of service to black women, girls and femmes who are sewing, who are working in this industry, who are doing this as a hobby, who see sewing as their love language. I want them to be seen and heard. And I want the Stitch Please podcast to do it. I think that that is a beautiful place to close this interview and to close the episode Lisa, thank you so much for swapping seats and be and subjecting yourself uh, to the questions. Thank you for uh, entrusting me to steward your chair and your microphone for this episode. I'm sure that I'm sure that it is not easy to hand off your baby to somebody uh to somebody you like even as much as you like me because I know you love me girl I do, love um, you. I do. <laughs> but uh but thank you I really I really hope that uh that your audience gets to know you in a bit of a different way uh through this episode and is able to uh and is able to appreciate the podcast maybe even with a bit of a different lens happy birthday stitch please the podcast and congratulations Lisa Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you.
You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out with, to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcasts Um, directories or services allow for reviews but for those who do for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the stitch please podcast that is incredibly helpful thank you so much come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together (laughs) 